Section 13 of the South American Republics, Volume 1, by Thomas Cleland Dawson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Piotr Natter. Part 2, Paraguay. Chapter 2, The Jesuit Republic and Colonial Paraguay. We have no accounts of the Jesuit missions in Guayra, or of the tragedy of their destruction, except those that were written by the fathers themselves. These are filled with manifest exaggerations and marred by omissions which we have few means of correcting. Nevertheless, the bold outlines of a story that, for bravery, pathos, and devotion, rivals any ever told, are clear and indisputable. Within such a short period as twenty years, the Jesuits had not succeeded in training the Guayra Indians to any very high degree of civilization. They complained that the Indians were still prone to return to their worship of their devils, Nevertheless, the massive walls of churches, which have survived the devastation wrought by three centuries of tropical rains, bear witness that the Jesuits had gathered together a multitude of people and had taught them a measure of skilled labor. Of the completeness of the victory of the Paulistas there is no doubt. Within three years, tens of thousands of Indians were carried off to Sao Paulo, and hardly a town was left standing in the province of Guayra. Father Montoya, chief Jesuit, has left an account of the Hegira which he led down the river. Though he is silent as to the part he took himself, it is hard to read his pages and not give him a place among the world's great heroes. Twelve thousand Indians of every sex and age assembled on the Paranapanema with the few belongings which they had been able to bring from the homes that they were forced to abandon. The Paulistas were daily expected to return, and the only hope of escape was to float down the river and get beyond the grand cataract of the Paraná. The journey to the beginning of the falls was made without any great losses. There the difficulties began. Ninety miles of falls and rapids intervene between navigable waters above and below the grand cataract. Across the river valley extends a mountain chain with slopes rugged and covered with dense vegetation. The river divides into various channels, and the sides of the gorges are clothed in cane breaks and tangled forests through which a path had to be cut with machetes. These poor Jesuits and their thousands of scared, patient Indians had no boats awaiting them at the foot of the hills, so they had to continue their dreary passage through the gorges and cane breaks, where wild Indians lay in ambush with poisoned arrows, until at last a place was reached where canoes could be built. Still they struggled on, the indomitable Jesuits taking every precaution, though out of immediate danger from the Paulistas, when they had passed the cataract, the Spaniards on the right bank below were hardly less to be feared. They were waiting on the shore of the Paraná for news of the fugitives, in order to pounce on them and make a rich haul of slaves. The provisions were exhausted, but the Jesuits dared not apply for help to the Creoles. Fever broke out, and, sick and starving, the devoted Jesuits and their uncomplaining followers worked away on their boats and rafts. At last they got them ready, and, slipping past the Spanish settlements in the night, they finally reached some small Jesuit missions near the mouth of the Iguazu, five hundred miles from their starting point. The Jesuits resolved to evacuate Guayra completely, and to build up their power anew in the country between the Paraná and the Uruguay. Within the next few years they had occupied the country that is now the Argentine territory of the missions. This tract lay directly across the Paraná, from that part of Paraguay proper, in which the Jesuits were most powerful, to the other side of the Uruguay, 
where was a fertile territory which proved an excellent field for the extension of the settlement. Before many years, these missions stretched in a broad band from the center of Paraguay 300 miles to the southeast. They dominated southern Paraguay and half the present Brazilian state of Rio Grande do Sul with the country that lies between, while their towns lined both banks of the upper Uruguay and the middle Paraná, cutting off the Creoles from extending their settlements up either of these great rivers. Now that the priests had concentrated their forces so near, the alarm of the Creoles became acute. The Jesuits managed to obtain the dismissal of the governor who had refused to send them aid when they were attacked by the Paulistas and were driven from the Guayra. But his successor also became a partisan of the Creoles as soon as he reached Asuncion. He visited the missions near the river Paraná and ordered that they be secularized on the ground that these regions had already been subjected by Spanish arms before its occupation by the priests. But the Jesuits were good lawyers and had powerful friends at every court, so the governor was forced to reverse his action. The next governor helped to make the Jesuits secure from Paulista's interference below the Grand Cataract by defeating an important expedition which had reached the new missions. The Paulistas did not confine their aggressions to the missions, but alarmed the Spanish Creoles themselves by penetrating west of the Paraná into Paraguay proper. Even Asuncion did not feel safe for a time. The Jesuits had now begun to arm and drill the Indians, though the Paulistas made expeditions from time to time, and the Spanish and Jesuit frontier settlements were frequently aroused by the news of a bloody raid and of the rapid depredations of a band of these dreaded marauders, there was never again such a wholesale destruction as had taken place in Guayra. The frontiers of the Spanish and Portuguese peoples on the Paraná remain to this day substantially as they were fixed by the Paulista expedition of 1630 to 1640. In their conflict with the Jesuits, the Creoles shortly received a valuable reinforcement in Bishop Cardenas, a very able and energetic prelate, and a man gifted as a ruler and statesman. Born in the city of Charcas, on the Bolivian plateau, he was a Creole of the Creoles. He became a great missionary and evangelist throughout Upper Peru of Tucuman, acquiring wonderful fame and popularity by his eloquence. In spite of the fact that he was a Creole, he was immensely popular among the Indians, and seems to have been a natural leader of both branches of the native population. He bitterly hated the Jesuits. As a member of the rival Franciscan order, his professional jealousy was aroused by their success, and his creole prejudices were outraged by their efforts to prevent the extension of white power amongst the aborigines. By sheer force of ability and eloquence, he rose into great prominence in southern Spanish America, and was rewarded for his successful labors in Tucuman by being appointed Bishop of Paraguay. There the Creoles accepted him as their leader, and he soon became the dominant figure in the community. He quarrelled repeatedly with the governor, but such was his force of character, and the skill with which he took advantage of the superstitious reverence for his apostolic office, that he invariably achieved his ends. Once the governor, at the head of a file of soldiers, presented himself at the bishop's door to arrest a fugitive whom the bishop had undertaken to protect. When the door was opened, there stood the dauntless priest in full canonicals, defying the governor to cross his threshold. He excommunicated the governor and every soldier who had dared take part in this affront to his dignity, and, like Hildebrandt, he was only appeased when the governor had begged for pardon on his knees. When the governor died, 
Bishop Cardenas succeeded at interim. His popularity and prestige were unbounded, and his audacity and courage unprecedented. Uniting in himself the religious, civil, and popular power, he controlled the forces of the community more completely than anyone who had preceded him. His great work was the humiliation and destruction of the Jesuits. He hampered their insidious spread on the hither side of the Paraná, and attempted the secularization of many of their missions. In 1649 he took the audacious step of issuing a decree expelling all the members of the Society of Jesus, and he actually drove the fathers from their churches and schools in Asuncion itself. The Jesuits appealed to the viceroy, and the governor was sent out to depose him. Twenty years had now elapsed since the Jesuits had armed the mission Indians and organized them into an efficient militia. An army was, therefore, ready to the new governor's hand. The Creoles of western Paraguay were riotous and tumultuous, but in that tropical climate they had lost much of the military capacity of their Spanish ancestors. The number of people of Spanish descent was small, and while the secular Indians made admirable soldiers when disciplined and well led, they had never been organized by the Creoles for serious warfare. The military system of the Jesuits immediately proved its superiority. Aided by the prestige of his viceregal commission, the new governor, at the head of the Jesuit army, quickly overcame the hastily gathered levies of the bishop. For the next 120 years, the Jesuits maintained their system in southeastern Paraguay and the regions on both banks of the Paraná and the upper Uruguay. Until 1728, their territory was nominally under the jurisdiction of the governor of Asuncion. Really, however, it was an independent republic ruled by a superior, whose capital was at Candelaria, and who was actually responsible to no one except his general at Rome and the authorities at Madrid. In the secular part of Paraguay, the formerly turbulent and secular Creoles sank more and more into the indifference characteristic of the Indians who surrounded them. Early in the 18th century, a governor named Antequera, whom the viceregal authorities attempted to depose, was forcibly maintained for a time by the Paraguayan Creoles, probably the earliest instance of an important movement towards independence which occurred in South America. The Paraguayans only yielded when a compromise was offered. The old ferocity which the original conquerors had felt against the Indians gave place gradually to kindlier sentiments. From slaves the Indians rose into serfs, and then into peasants, living on good terms with the proprietors of their lands, and not more oppressed by Spanish officials than the whites themselves. Secular Paraguay, shut in on the west by the impenetrable Chaco with its hordes of dreaded wild Indians, and on the east by the Jesuit territory, could not expand. Indeed, the impulse towards conquest and exploration which so distinguished the Paraguayan Creoles in the latter part of the 16th century had completely died out as early as the middle of the 17th century. In 1728, the Jesuit Republic was formally detached from the jurisdiction of Paraguay and placed under that of the government of Buenos Aires. The missions were all situated on or near the banks of the Upper Paraná and Uruguay, and their line of communication with the outside world ran directly to Buenos Aires. They had few commercial relations with Asuncion, and it was inconvenient to maintain even a shadow of political relation with that capital. The Jesuit missions prospered, although, curiously enough, their population remained stationary. South and east of the Paraná, which they occupied, was mostly an open, rolling plain, admirably suited for pasturage. 
Herding cattle was the chief employment of the Indians and the chief source of the exports. However, in the forests northwest of the Paraná, agriculture was more practiced, and the principal exports thence were the mate tea and timber. In the pastoral country, the Jesuits did not expand further. They had already gathered most of the Indians who inhabited that region into their missions, and the natural increase of population did not justify any new settlements. But in the wooded country across the Paraná, a few tribes of Guaranis had hitherto escaped subjection to either Creoles or Jesuits, and farther to the west, in the great Chaco, there were many tribes of savage and intractable Indians. In both these directions, the Jesuits kept up their missionary efforts. In Paraguay, they were successful and converted many tribes of the northern part of that country, but in the Chaco, they could make little progress. In 1769, the King of Spain issued his famous decree banishing the Jesuits from all his dominions. It was feared that in the center of their power on the Upper Paraná they might offer resistance. They commanded a population of more than 200,000 Indians, fairly well armed and disciplined, and absolutely devoted to them. Nevertheless, they submitted quietly. Spanish officials replaced the Jesuits in control of the civil and commercial interests of the mission towns, and priests of other orders were sent up to continue spiritual instruction. The Spanish officials were, however, not successful in holding the Indians together. Their exactions and cruelties drove the Indians to despair, and within a very few years emigration began. The seven missions to the east of the Uruguay had been traded by Spain to Portugal in 1750, and most of their inhabitants had been killed or driven across the Uruguay. The most populous missions lay between the Uruguay and the Paraná, in the territory that today forms the upper part of Corrientes and the missions territory. A large proportion of their inhabitants fled down the Uruguay into Entre Rios and Uruguay proper. Those on the west side of the Paraná largely remained or removed only far enough to coalesce with the secular Indians of Paraguay. Some of the outlying and more remote missions were abandoned altogether, and Paraguay then assumed its present extent. The population was fairly homogeneous, and its vast majority was composed of descendants of the aborigines, with comparatively few Spaniards and Creoles of mixed blood forming the upper strata of society. The country felt few of the quickening and disturbing influences which were already animating the regions at the mouth of the river towards the end of the 18th century. Little effort was necessary to get a subsistence from the teeming soil, and, content with their luscious oranges, their mate, and their unlimited tobacco, the Paraguayans led an idyllic existence. They had little sympathy with the turbulent, active-minded population which was crowding into Buenos Aires and making it a commercial, political, and intellectual focus. Agricultural in their habits, they disliked the hard-riding gauchos of the southern plains hardly less than the turbulent Indians of the Chaco. In the movements that preceded the revolution of 1810, they took no part. End of section 13